0: Welcome to The Hif Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. This event was recorded live at the Feakston Old Pekelia Crime Writing Festival. Enjoy! until we got here, because I <laughs> hadn't realised how many people were behind the curtain. Um, uh, thank you very much for coming, and uh, and I'm very excited to be uh, having a nice chat with lovely Lee Child. Uh, let's, can I dish you with some water first? Can we do some water? Yeah, Is that water, all right? Yes. Um, uh, thank you very much. Do oh, you want still or sparkling? Still, please. Oh, still? See, I'm surprised, because I thought he'd be sparkling. <laughs> Am I being a bit judgy there? <laughs> I'm still, because I asked for a tap, and they didn't have any... <laughs> for you, there you go. Thank you. You're welcome. I just feel uncomfortable with things that are bought <laughs> when they don't need to be. <clears throat> it's fine, don't worry sound- um, So thank you very much to everybody for coming, and obviously thanks to Lee and thank, to, thank you to the sponsor of Transworld Publishers as well. Now, should we get cracking, love? Yeah. You sound crackin'. just like my mother. why <laughs> so, do I? She
1: comes from South Shields. Is that where you come from?
0: It's exactly where I come from. Well, wait now. Hold on. We'll do the interview in a minute. But where, (laughs) whereabouts in South Shields was your mum from, Flower?
1: Well, I don't really know. She left when she was eleven, and uh, you know. But I know now that you know you get pregnant eleven-year-olds in South Shields with um, (laughs) living in council flats on benefits. That's what it says in the so Daily your Mail, left anyway. In,
0: when she was 11, because she was pregnant, is that what you're seeing?
1: She wasn't pregnant. Well, she might have. I've got an older brother, so I can't really calculate it. But uh, <laughs> she waited, I think, 17 years to have me. So I can't. I don't know where she came from exactly. Presumably, some cobbled street glistening with rain. and... Um, <laughs>
0: that's, that's all of it, love.
1: Presumably, uh, a corner shop and a pub, and Sturdy Geordie Again, saying way the lads, and down the pit, and when the boat comes in, and all that kind of stuff.
0: Yes. Yeah. Now, it's all from truth that you'll see yeah. all these things. <laughs>
1: I, I've done that, my done research. The, you
0: have absolutely done your research. Uh, excellent. Well, I think we should uh, start. Um, now, before you were a writer, you worked in television. I did. Is there anything about being a TV producer that you miss?
1: Well, you know, there's a famous American journalist called Hunter S. Thompson, Mm -hmm. and he said that uh, the television business is a blood-filled money trench where pimps and thieves run free and good men go to die. (laughs) And then he said, and there is a negative side. (laughs) And it was... uh,
0: Were you a pimp or a thief?
1: um, Well, both. I mean, that's what you do in television. Uh, We take people like you, and we exploit you ruthlessly, and then we throw you on the scrap heap, you know. It's nice
0: to know what I've got to look for. Exactly.
1: I I, I do miss it a little bit, only because it was collegial. You know, there was teams of people, lots of people working together, and being a writer is absolutely the opposite of that. It's completely lonely. I'm on my own almost all the years, except with, you know, the only people I see are the ones inside my head. So I miss that half hour in the morning where you walk in and, you know, everybody's like, you hear the latest jokes, you hear the punchlines, you hear all that kind of stuff. So I do miss that. Yeah, I miss that a little bit.
0: Okay. Um, Do you watch much television? Is there anything that you've seen lately that you wish you'd produced? Or have you totally left that whole part of your brain long gone?
1: Uh, Yeah, I don't watch much. I watch sports because I've been in... uh, I was in the theatre first, then television, now writing books, so my entire life has been about fiction. Mm. And so there's very little that, you know, a show comes on, I know what's going to happen within the first couple of minutes. I know who's done it and what's going to happen, and so it's Uh kind of boring. So I mainly stick to sports where... I think sports is genuinely the last thing where you don't know what's going to happen.
0: Well, you do, don't you? Because, like, somebody's going (laughs) to (laughs) win.
1: Well, yeah, but... But that's the essence of the thing, which one, you know, who?
0: Yeah, but you've got a 50-50 chance really have (laughs) not
1: Well, it could be a draw.
0: That's a good point. That is a guy. It is is tricksy sport, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I hadn't thought that through at all, had I? Sorry, no. I might start watching sport now, now that there are three options. There are three. (laughs) Um,
1: Apart from tennis, where I don't think there's any draws in tennis, right?
0: Uh, no, but there's a lot of good size. Anyway, um, <laughs> I have watched this. Uh, now, do you, did you start writing while you were producing? Did you have that thing that a lot of writers have where they've got, a, I suppose, a proper job, and they're writing and trying to get that off no, the No, I,
1: I was a writer because I lost my proper job. Uh, okay. th- that's why I did it. I was fired. And, um, I because was... you
0: were a pimp or a thief? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, quite the reverse, because I wasn't a good enough pimp or a thief. <gasps>
0: That's a nice thing yeah. to be, Yeah,
1: so I was fired, and uh, up to that point, I hadn't thought about it. I'd read lots of books, but unbelievably, and this is absolutely true, until I was about 35, I never even thought where books came from. You know, I knew they were there, and I read them. I'd read probably tens of thousands of books, but I had never really seriously thought about anybody writing them right. and then publishing them. They were just there. Mm-hmm. And so uh, when I lost my job, I thought, what can I do now? um,
0: It's lucky that you found that out quickly, though, because you could have ended up just working in a library, couldn't you? I could have done,
1: (laughs) yeah. And that would have been fine. I went to the job centre, and uh, there was there was only one job on offer. This was 1995, and there was, uh, you know, periodically a bit of a recession like there is now, and there was only one job at the job centre, and that was a warehouse man in Kendal.
0: Right.
1: And so it it was a choice of warehouse man in Kendal or write a book. And so I thought I'd try write a book.
0: And did you tell that I used to work in the job set, I bet they were thrilled at you just saying, I'm just probably just going to write books.
1: <laughs> <laughs> they were thrilled because it, it was £43.50 a week unemployment benefit and the idea that I would sort of graduate off of that, it did, it filled them with, with a thrill because they thought, here's one person that can disappear from the roles.
0: And that was enough to give you motivation, I suppose. To yeah, well, uh, living on
1: £43.50 a week sounded like uh, a drag, you know. Mm.
0: And how long did it take you from when you first decided to start writing to it being on a shelf in a bookshop?
1: On a shelf was a long time. It it took me five months to write the book. Mm -hmm. And then I I had seven months. I had seven months worth of money. Seven mortgage payments uh, is what I could afford. And so I wrote the book in five months, uh, found an agent, and he sold it with uh, six weeks to spare.
0: Wow! I had
1: one more mortgage payment, but not two. Wow. And uh, and then it was a long time before it appeared on the shelf because uh, you know, when you, with your first book, you got to, you, you you feed it into the machine, and they think, okay, this is a spring book, you know, in time for mm-hmm. Father's Day or whatever. And it was kind of too soon for the first spring, so it was going to be the second spring. So it was altogether about a year and a year and a quarter between selling it and it appearing on the shelf.
0: And when it did appear on the shelf, did you? Did you sneak in a bookshop and have a little look at it?
1: Did I sneak in? I practically lived in the bookshop. (laughs) (laughs) But just pointing,
0: just the whole time. This is what you want. Come here, flower. Is this is what you want over
1: here. Yeah, I mean, I'd, absolutely. I still do. I do that whole thing where, um, you know, you go in the bookshop and you, if it's shelved with the spine out, you know, you turn it around so it's face out. <laughs> you uh, tidy
0: up in water storage. Oh, That's yeah, excellent. Yeah, yeah.
1: We all do that. It's, there's a constant parade of. All, you have to go back an hour later because some other author will have been in and, and reversed it.
0: <laughs> but you're between, you're between Raymond Chandler and Agatha Christie. So there's not much argument from them two, really, is there?
1: No, it's <laughs> it, it really helps to argue with dead people. Yeah. <laughs> oh,
0: <laughs> sorry. No. Um, where do, can I ask where you write? Have you got is have you got a room or is it a kitchen table thing? Or where do you write?
1: Well, the first one was dining room table. Mm-hmm. Our kitchen was too small to have a table, so it was a dining room table with pencil on on pads of paper. A pencil. Yeah.
0: Why a pencil?
1: Because, I don't trust pencils. Well, with a pencil, you can rub them out. And uh, that's what I bought my entire investment. Because, you see, I was a terrible spendthrift. And a lot of us were fired at the same time. And right. other people had saved their money. And they, were, they set themselves up as freelance cameramen or whatever, or freelance video editors. You know, they spent 50 grand on, on their own gear. And I didn't have 50 grand. I had probably about £3.50. <laughs> and so I went to uh, WH Smith's. And I'm saying that because it's true, not because they're sponsors of this festival.
0: But I mean, if they've got any free pencils, like that they want to fling in your direction, that's champion.
1: It? Yes. <laughs> it is, but I've still got the pencil. I went to, I went to Smith's oh. in the Arndale Centre in Manchester, and I bought three pads of paper, a pencil, a pencil sharpener, and a rubber. And the total bill was £3.99. So I was already 49 pence in the red <laughs> at that point. And I've still got the pencil, and it started out, it was yellow, it was regular length. And by the time I finished the book, it was, it was only this long. And I've still got it. And in fact, last year, Esquire magazine wanted to do an interview, and I told them about the story of the pencil, and they became obsessed by the pencil. <laughs> and they, they wanted me to FedEx it from New York to London so they could photograph it for, for their article, which I did. And so that pencil was, has crossed the Atlantic many times now. <laughs> Oh. So, yeah, if you look for a back issue of Esquire from last year, you'll see the actual pencil life-size.
0: I'm genuinely impressed, though, that you have got a whole book out of three quarters of a pencil. <laughs> Maybe I should rethink pencils.
1: Well, it was... You know, you can get different hardnesses with pencils. What,
0: what, were you, what like 3H or what, what, what was it?
1: I, I, I'm not familiar with the terminology, but this one was pretty hard and therefore it didn't go down all that fast. Right. But I was in a hurry. I was broke. I was out of work broke and I wasn't going to, I wasn't like doing. I've heard of writers that sort of do 10,000 words and then think this is no good and they scrap them. And I would rather slip my wrists than do that. So I just, I just wrote it all out. I didn't, you know, I didn't waste many words, I didn't do much rubbing out. I don't know where the rubber went, but it was hardly ever used.
0: Wow. So do you, do you think it's better just to get to the end of the book and then go, now we need to redraft, rather than to sort of write a bit and then go, oh, I'm not happy with that, and keep going back and back and back? Did you, was it your plan just to get to the end of the book and then hand it in?
1: Yeah, that's what I do. I mean, people say you know, there's, all kinds of, there's all kinds of slogans about writing. They say writing is rewriting, and some people love all of that revising. Mm. I hate that. What I do is I write the book, and I mail it off, and that's it. I never look at it again, it's done, I'm on to the next one. So that, and I, I've, my editors are here, which is sort of difficult to say in front of them, but I believe that the first draft is the best draft, well, you and anything, you, you? if you start buggering about with it, then it gets worse, that's what I think.
0: So you, do you, you must say revisions of it though different drafts of it,
1: though, or do you... No, not just, really. I mean, they, the copy editors do a great job. You know, copy yes. editors are, the sort, are, are not the same as editors. Copy editors go through it and they say, wait a minute, the car on page 30 was yellow and on page 330 it's blue. Um, that sort of a thing. Yeah. So you've got to change that or, you know, just let them change it. Just say, yeah, fine. And yeah. Make
0: uh, the car whatever colour you bloody like. Yeah. I'm working on the next one, flower. Which is...
1: And um, People are obsessed by stuff like that. I, once, I, I was once commissioned to write a movie for Harvey Weinstein, and I wrote this movie, and it had a helicopter in it, and I, it was, you've got to picture the scene in a movie, so I wrote the scene where they... This is all this torn, tall corn out in, in, in the field in Illinois, and they sort of get through the corn, and there's a clearing, and there's a white helicopter sitting in this clearing, and it has this chemical weapon on it, and it takes off, and it's going to dump this chemical weapon over Chicago. And it was a very exciting movie, never got made. I got paid, but it never got made. And uh, I loved writing the script, absolutely loved it. It took 11 days, and uh, then I gave it in, and then you get what they call a story conference, which are endless, endless story conferences, time after time. And, uh, and I remember at one point, they said, you know the white helicopter? And I said, yeah, they said, could it be black? <laughs> and I used your, your exact line. I said, it can be any bloody color you like. LAUGHTER
0: I like that. (laughs) Do you write every day? Now, when you're writing a book, do you write every day? Or do you allow yourself weekends off? Or what is your pattern?
1: I I start on September the 1st. Really? Yeah, every year, September the 1st. I depend on the the back end of August to get an idea. Because right now it's, what, July the 20th or something? I have no clue, not the remotest clue what the next book is going to are be about. Are you
0: panicky about that? Or are you I finished?
1: used to be, but then I figured, you know what, it always happens. End, end of August, it's like a sneeze. I just feel it coming, you know, around about the 15th of August. I'm going back to New York on the 11th of August. So that by the 15th, I'll be in that process of something will occur to me and it will build up and build up and build up. Mm-hmm. And then by the end of August, I'll, I'll have the 10-second, what they call an elevator pitch. I'll, I'll have the... This happens, and then that happens, and this guy, you really think he's this, but actually he's that, and that's going to be fantastic, and it'll end up there.
0: And, and that's what you have.
1: That's what I have by September the 1st, and then September the 1st onward. What I desc- it's, it's a process of managing the disappointment, because you've got to turn that 10-second ele- elevator pitch, which sounds very exciting. You've got to type out all those words. And what I have learned o- over 18 books is there's a lot of words in a book, Mm. And you have to put, you have and to take them all. A lot out. of them are
0: different as well.
1: Some of them are different. <laughs> With mine, actually, not all that different. <laughs> <laughs> I have certain words that I like. Uh, certain words I use a lot. Certain phrases. We were just talking on the way down about uh, about. Richard said nothing, which is occurs very frequently in my books, and people assume that it's because. Reacher is this taciturn character who, you know, maintains his own counsel and doesn't say much. But really, it's just that if I can't think what to put next, I say, Reacher said nothing. <laughs> oh,
0: we're all going to read them a little bit differently now, aren't
1: we? <laughs> and the other thing, you can, t- you can always tell how, one- how well one of my books is going. Because if I get stuck, I get up and make a cup of coffee. Right. And then, inevitably, Reacher has a cup of coffee when I sit back down again. <laughs> So depending on how many cups of coffee he has during a book, you know how well it's gone. It's like
0: a code just for us, isn't it? It
1: is. It? That's the insider code.
0: And do you have, do you do like like an office job? Do you do like a nine to five?
1: Well, not exactly nine because I... Uh, it's too
0: early, isn't
1: it? Yeah, wait, oh, yeah. I have one inflexible motto, which is that nothing of value is ever achieved in the morning. So I never start... Because, you know, working on television, it's a round-the-clock thing, seven days a week, and I would sometimes be working all night or starting very early in the morning or finishing very late, and I decided that the one luxury I was going to allow myself was to uh, start late. So, typically, I get up around 11 o'clock, and I'll I'll usually start around 1 o'clock, and then I'll work for sometimes as much as four or five hours, and then stop. Wow.
0: You work yourself hard, don't you? I do.
1: I work myself very hard, but...
0: And how many cups of coffee would you have in that four hours?
1: <laughs> well, my mother-in-law used to be a nurse. And remember, it like, I don't know when it was, 30 years ago or something, there was, people started saying coffee was bad for you. And uh, this was resonating throughout the medical community. So she said, how many cups of coffee did you drink? And I said, I don't really know. So I counted up the next day. I I drank 36 cups of coffee in in that day.
0: Oh, my
1: God. And I smoke as well. So typically what I do is I try and elevate myself to that level of just balancing on the edge of having a stroke. (laughs) Just on the edge. Just on the edge. I don't want to go too far, but on the other hand, I don't want to be too relaxed. So uh, I sit there drinking coffee, smoking like a fiend. And, you know, I could do more than five hours, but the, the issue is that if you... It's a subtle thing, and and I plead it in self-defense, and I think other writers would definitely back me up, that you reach a point where the quality Mm. just slightly drops off. And you could absolutely carry on for another five hours, but there's no point, because tomorrow morning you'll read it through and you'll think, this is no good, and you'll delete it. So you just learn to spot where you hit the wall and then stop. And for me, it's about five hours. And I I do work every day that is available to me, Mm. um, which is not every day, because there are other things to do, like you know, conferences like this or interviews and stuff and there are, you know, family things.
0: Life,
1: yeah. The family want you to take, you know, Christmas Day and all that kind of stuff. They, they, oh, expect, so you know, they expect you to be available. I know. They
0: expect you to be available to do Yeah, say exactly. That?
1: It's <laughs> most <laughs> inconsiderate. So I take a day off and then, you know, get back to it and it... it I, For a while, in the middle period, for the middle books, I I kept journals of Mm -hmm. how many words I was doing a day and how many days it was. And typically, it's between 80 and 90 working days to do a book. And then I stopped doing those journals, because one of the books, I can't remember, I think it was 61 hours, I was uh, finding it difficult. And it was too depressing to write it down in a journal, you know, three words today. (laughs) And so I, I quit the journals. But I think it is around about three months' work, But because of all these days off, you got it expands to about six months.
0: Right. So three weeks solid. Three three months solid. Three months solid. If I could do it back to back. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit how, you said that you start with uh, an elevator pitch. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit where you go from there? So do you, for example, do you know where it's going to end before you start?
1: Not really. I know sort of vaguely there's always a thing towards the end Mm -hmm. that could be a visual thing or it could be even a line of dialogue or it could be something is going to be somewhere near the end. And so I I know I'm heading in that direction. And then what I do is the first sentence, I love the first sentence because the first sentence is a unique sentence in the book because the first sentence is the only sentence that doesn't follow another sentence. So, it can be whatever you want. So, what I typically.
0: said nothing. Just do that.
1: Yeah, I could do that. I've never actually started a book that way, but I could. <laughs> I, if I, that I,
0: happens in one of your future books, I'm going to totally take credit for that. <laughs> yeah. I,
1: so, I, I think of a good sentence, and then I sort of think, okay, where, where could this sentence lead? Mm-hmm. And even if it, the sentence is completely different from how I imagined the story would start, if it's a good sentence, I'll stick with it. Because there's nothing better than a good sentence.
0: There are some things better than a good sentence. But with regards to writing books, I've got you. Um, um, th-
1: you know, looking at it at my age, there is nothing better than a good sentence.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what kind of... Do you do a lot of research? Do you research alongside? Did you research prior?
1: I, you know, research is such a difficult question because uh, this type of book is often quite technical. Mm. You know, there's stuff in it and, and so on. and. This very small stuff, like the name of a gun or something like that. I'll give you an example and I have to do it in a linear fashion. I can never go back and fill in a hole. Okay. But I just have to... So I started out one book. The book, I think it's called Bad Luck and Trouble. And the first sentence is the man was called Calvin Franz and the helicopter was a... And I don't know anything about helicopters. So White I, one,
0: black one.
1: So I had to... <laughs> it needed a like a... you know, the model number. Uh, So I stopped at that point, having written several words. I then stopped and sent off to Amazon for a helicopter book.
0: Um, (laughs) So you couldn't get past that and just go back and go out No, I can't go
1: back and fill it in. I will never go back and and fill anything in. So I I then waited three or four days for the book to come. Mm -hmm. And I looked through and I picked a good-looking helicopter, which was white, as a matter of fact, in the book.
0: I do know a bit about helicopters. Yeah,
1: and... (laughs) It was a Bell 222, so then I filled it in. The man was called Calvin Franz, and the helicopter was a Bell B222, and then off I went for the rest of the book. And so the small stuff like that, yeah, I will... Because there's something really phony if you get it wrong, you know. If you, no. if you get the name of a helicopter, and you really it's not the name of a helicopter, it sounds wrong. Same with guns, same with certain things like that. But that's the small stuff. The, the big stuff, I don't do any research at all because, technically speaking, I think when you're doing a book a year, if you start researching grand issues, then it's going to be too fresh, and it's going to stick out, and it's going to be obvious that you've just done this research. And I've read books like that, and I'm sure we all have, where you sort of read, read between the lines. The author says, I'm, I'm, I've done the research, damn it, so I'm going to put it in whether I need to or not. And so I prefer to, to rely on the big things, what I already know. Right. And of course the pretentious answer is that a, li- a writer's whole life is mm. research, because everybody you ever meet, anybody you know, you talk to, every movie you see, all the TV, all the books you read, something will stick in your mind and it will be useful later. And so just being alive is research, really.
0: Mm, excellent. Um, if you could go... If you could go back to that first day that you started your first book Mm. and give yourself one piece of advice that you have learnt in all of your time, what would that be?
1: That's a very intelligent question.
0: You sound surprised. (laughs) 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 Rude.
1: That's a question I've never been asked that question before. What well, does have th- a think? This is, a, this is an absolute first. After 18 years, I've been asked a new question. <laughs> <laughs> um, what advice would I give myself? Is there uh, anything
0: that you think, if you, knew, if you knew that then, that you wouldn't have maybe spent... Maybe something, one of your rules that you have now that you didn't have then, that think, makes things a lot easier now?
1: To be honest, probably what I would have done in the first book, I made Reacher's mother French. And I did that because I had heard. I mean, I, I was proceeding on total ignorance, everything, I'd, I'd sort of half heard all these things about publishing. And, um, and a lot of them turned out to be wrong. And one of the things that I'd heard was that France is a very insular market and they don't like imported literature. And I thought, well, if I make his mother French, then the, they're bound to buy the book. <laughs> and it'll be wow. translated into French and published in France. And so, <laughs> so I did. and. Uh, True enough, yeah, they translated it and, um, and, and it's published in France. But ironically, even though his mother is French, out of the entire world, I think as of now I'm published in 96 countries. And out of all of those 96, I do worse in France than anywhere.
0: Maybe because they know that you just did it for that.
1: <laughs> Maybe because they think I'm a cynical bastard, yeah. <laughs>
0: thing to write like fight scenes or a character's in a monologue or like when you write is it oh, oh god I was going to say when you write love scenes is it hard but that feels like <laughs> a bad is it tricky to write a love scene
1: yeah absolutely the hardest definitely the hardest oh, is it scenes. really
0: more than a fight scene
1: oh the fight scenes are dead easy it's the love scenes the sex scenes are incomparably the hardest really? I mean yeah just just virtually impossible. And do you
0: like cringe while you're typing like, oh, this is awful, or, or, or do you sometimes have to have like a little brief? <laughs>
1: well, what I, what I try, I mean, I either, I either don't put him in at all, or if you're gonna put in a sex scene, it's gotta be, you know, you, it, it, it's gotta be quite long. You know, it's gotta be <laughs> decent. And so I, I, basically I sit there searching my memory, to be honest. <laughs> Um, You know, I say to my... You get
0: on Amazon and order yourself a book about it.
1: (laughs) That's the first joke my daughter ever told me when she was about sort of seven. She came up with this joke which says, you know, the man nudges his wife and says, have you got time for a quickie? And she says, as opposed to what?
0: (laughs) That's a really good joke. Uh, A bit alarming for a seven-year-old. but Yeah, (laughs) right. And
1: so uh, the last time I really seriously did... And, and you, you get the sort of feeling that if you're going to do, if you're going to put sex in the book, you know, you've got to do it wholeheartedly. So the last one I did was the if affair. that's not
0: just books, by the way. <laughs> Maybe that's where I've
1: been going wrong. Um, so it was the affair that was the last book that had a lot of sex in it, and that was, um, I was just panicking like mad. But you know, part of my writing method is I just throw stuff in the in the early part of the book. I just throw stuff in for the for the atmosphere and the, the sort of color of it, and I, I had this train that rumbled through the town, this gigantic freight train that rumbled through the town at midnight, which I—it was an image I basically stole from a movie called My Cousin Vinny*,
0: mm.
1: which actually I've stolen a lot from that movie. My, um, the whole first book, uh, Killing Floor, was set in, in Georgia, and I, at the time I was living in Kirby Lonsdale in Cumbria and had, had, had never been to Georgia. So I t- in order to pick up the sort of local Georgia atmosphere, I watched My Cousin Vinny, right. which is actually set in Alabama, but I figured really... Um, it's
0: close enough. You
1: know exactly what's the difference, <laughs> really. Uh, and it has this freight train that rumbles through the town, and, and it's a joke in the movie because he's, he's very tired, he's trying to get some sleep, and the, and the train vibrates the room and wakes him up. So I had that in the book early on, and then when it came to the sex thing, I thought, how am I going to do this scene? And then all of a sudden thought, I know, I'll use the train. And uh, the train pr- pl- plays an integral part in the scene. And I thought it came out really pretty well. But then, uh, obviously, people didn't agree because um, that book was nominated for the Bad Sex Award. <laughs> but I thought underhandedly because the quote that they used omitted the train, which kind of made nonsense of the scene. Mm. So I thought it was a rather underhanded nomination. And um, Did you
0: win the award?
1: I, did not, I didn't actually well, that's win the good, award, because they normally give it to a literary writer, which is the, the only time I'm happy to see literary writers get awards. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, are you any good at taking time off? I know you say you start in September, and then obviously you're doing things like this now, though. Are you any good at saying, I'm going to have a month off, and I'm just going to good at it. And, no?
1: No. I mean, the, you know, in a way, because I'm too good at it. If, I think if I did that, I would never get back to work. I oh, mean, really? You know, if I took a month off, I would think, I'm really enjoying this, so I'll take another <laughs> month off. And,
0: uh, have you ever thought, because you've written so many successful novels, have you ever thought, I'm doing all right now, maybe I'll just stop? Or is it something that you need to do?
1: It's, that's a very yeah, it's a, that's a good question. Well, I've got two and yeah. I've done two. <laughs> <laughs> because it really, it really comes down to you know, what is writing. And it seems to me, anyway, there's two components to writing. The one is the fun and the fantasy and the daydreaming and the making up. Of stories, um, which, which is why I'm able to do it at all, because that's what I've always done. That you know, I'm constantly in a in a sort of fantasy dream world. Uh, you know that character Walter Mitty. Um, he, he looks like a completely normal person next to me. Uh, you know, I've never driven a car. I'm always piloting a, a fighter plane. And, you know, I'm never going to the supermarket. I'm always driving to Checkpoint Charlie to pick up a spy. Uh, it's all fantasy in my head. And, and that part I love and definitely would never stop doing that. But then the other half of it is the actual business part of, of writing it down in a coherent fashion and, uh, you know, sending it off, getting it published, doing the promotion and all that kind of thing. And I think any writer would agree the fun is in the first part. And the second part is, is procedural. So, yeah, I would, um, I would, I would not miss that second part. And I w- but I would not stop the first part. Right. So. Um, so an
0: argument would be: if you're going to do the first part, you might as well do the second part.
1: Kind of, yeah, because uh, you know we have a s- saying in the writing world: it's better than digging a ditch, and it really is.
0: Mm. True enough, it is indeed. Um, I'm going to ask you a few questions about Jack Richer, if I may. Um, In what ways are you similar to Jack? Because you're tall and he's tall. Um, He doesn't change his pants that often. Uh, And I stood beside you before and it was very close and I suspect you're not the same as him in that capacity.
1: Well, you know, I knew today was the big event, so I brought a spare pair. Ah,
0: Yeah. bless, we're all flattered.
1: I mean, he and I are, uh, I think we all do this, you know. I I think it's inevitable. A a main character in a series is is often autobiographical, Mm. or at least partly, or largely, or there are elements of him that are autobiographical, and that's absolutely true. I mean, all his mental processes, his enthusiasms, his uh, quirks and eccentricities are basically mine. As far as the the violence goes, I I try and tone it down in the books in order to keep it plausible. (laughs)
0: And we appreciate that. Yeah. And they're all glad that they're over there. Uh, there's a distance between you and them. Um, are you as minimalist as him, though? Are you... Do you say when you've travelled here, you must bring more than a toothbrush? Uh,
1: um, yeah, I do bring more than a toothbrush. I bring toothpaste. That's a concession I make that uh, Richard does not. Um, but, I, yeah, I'm pretty minimalist. I, uh, and it was, one, you know, it was one of those great ironies of life, really, that... Um, you know, I was never really poor before, but I, you know, I never really had any spare money, and, and you sort of dream of, hypothetically, you know, what would you do, what car would you buy, um, and all that kind of stuff, and and then it, it rolls around, and, and suddenly, you know, by luck or, or whatever, you, you do have the money, and I was no longer really interested in, in buying stuff, and so I don't have much stuff. My Where I live in New York is a... I live in a completely empty apartment. It is um, it is white. Uh, everything is concealed behind secret doors, and the, nothing is on view. I, I,
0: nothing is on view. No,
1: there is not a single thing. Not in any fact, one ornaments of the newspapers
0: or any photographs, nothing. Nothing.
1: One of the newspapers wanted to do a thing where they would come to your home and uh, to you know photograph mm-hmm. a, a special object, and you would tell the story behind it. And I said, well, you can't come because I haven't got any objects. <laughs>
0: So, they just came to photograph your lack of special objects?
1: Yeah, that was in, uh, there was actually a Wall Street Journal thing about my apartment. People are obsessed by it because there is nothing in it. Absolutely nothing. I've found that the more time goes on, the less stuff I have.
0: And because I read that when, you, when a button comes off a shirt, you throw the shirt away. Is that true?
1: Yeah, I didn't know that there was an alternative.
0: <laughs> your mum from Shields didn't teach you very well, did she?
1: Well, she was a very traditional woman. She didn't teach us to sew, no, because so we were just boys. Just
0: throw away, Just throw away. because you were. Uh, yeah, but you, you know, you could have learned since then. You don't. You know, you can learn things that aren't off your mum, don't you?
1: It was. <laughs> you? Well, I did actually have another writer. That's uh, James Lee Burke's daughter, Alafair Burke, mm-hmm. uh, is a writer, and she's a friend of mine. And she came round, and uh, you know, we were heading out to dinner or something, and she. She wanted to spit out her gum or something, so she pulled open the, the trash bin in the kitchen and there was a shirt in it. And she said, What's that? And I said, Well the button fell off. And she she pulled it out, took it home, sewed the button back on, washed it and brought it back, which I thought was very nice of her. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and did she, she didn't get into a habit of doing that, did she? <laughs> She'd be very silly if she did.
1: Yeah, she would be a mug if she did.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Now, is there... You're saying that your whole... Every time you do things, it's the fantasy rather than... So the fight the pilot rather than driving. Mm. Is there a little... Do you always have your little Jack Reacher voice on? Like, for example, in this room, are you looking for the exits and figuring out who might have a gun, that sort of thing?
1: <laughs> absolutely. I mean, uh, I come from Birmingham, I and mean, you've got to do that.
0: <laughs> That's harsh. Uh, <laughs> um, do you ever see a time when you may be tempted to kill Jack Reacher off?
1: I was going to, yeah. When the last book rolled around, whenever it may be, and I just signed up for three more, so it's not going to be for, you know, potentially in three years. Right. Potentially. I was going to... The last book was going to be called Die Lonely. And oh, it was going happy. to... It was going to end up with, uh, it was going to be a plotting challenge, because Reach is a pretty capable guy, but it, I had to maneuver him into a situation where at the end of the book it was um, either him or the person he was protecting would have to go down, and I figured if I was ingenious about the plot, I could make it inevitable that it had to be him. Right. And he would be grievously injured, and then the final scene would be uh, some filthy motel bathroom somewhere. He'd be bleeding out on the floor, and that would be the end of the series, but... I've decided not to do that because, I, th- I mean, genuinely, I think, you know, I'm so touched and so grateful that people like him so mm-hmm. much. And, you know, I, I'm a reader myself. All writers are readers, uh, primarily. You know, I, re- I write one book a year and I read hundreds. We, we think like readers, and I would be very upset if that happened to one of my favorite characters. So I couldn't do that to people, so I changed my mind on that. The last book will not be called Die Lonely. Uh, the last book will be called something else and he won't die at the end. And in a way, that's a negative because you won't know it's the last book. Um, you'll just think it's a normal book. And then you'll wait a year or two years or whatever and you'll think, wait a minute, wasn't this supposed to be a new book? And, um, and you'll conclude, oh, that was the last book.
0: I'm glad it's not going to be for a while, though. Um, I do worry a little bit about Richard. He hasn't got any friends or any workmates. Who does he talk to?
1: Well, that. You know that's uh, that is you know the su- that is the central uh, issue of Reach's personality. That he loves he loves his solitude. Um, he loves to be left alone. But at the same time, I think he, he worries very much about being lonely. It's a it's a kind of it's a split. He loves solitude, but he, he worries about being a lonely man. And I think he is a lonely man. And um, you know, not that I'm deep into sort of psychological stuff in books. You know, these are not these are not booker prize-winning type books, these are thrillers, but I do try and, and, and illustrate that, you know, that he is, he is t- constantly torn. He mm-hmm. likes to be alone, but he worries about being lonely, and um, so, yes, yeah, it's, it's an issue. He doesn't have friends, he doesn't have somebody he can talk to. Which is why I think when he does meet somebody in each book, typically it is quite an intense relationship, mm. uh, possibly physically, but often mentally. You know, he really he's really grasping at people for for temporary company.
0: Mm. Um, I've thought of some titles for you, okay, um, for you to use as Richard gets on a bit. You know, as he gets a lot older, <laughs> uh, you don't have to pay me for them. Um, <laughs> I'm just. You know, as you are my witnesses, these are free.
1: Free, okay, good.
0: The first one. Um, this is more as he gets, like, sort of towards kind of 70s, maybe. Um, if you're going to continue for a long time, we need to think about this though, Lee. Um The first one I thought of is the visitor, but I've put in brackets: don't let him in. Because um, <laughs> obviously it's safety first. You know, he's, he'll be vulnerable. Um, sexy vulnerable. Don't worry. Um, cardigans and pain. That was another one I had. <laughs> Uh, the long nap, which could mean death.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, dead man's slippers. What do you think of that? <laughs>
1: uh-huh.
0: oh, good. Good. Uh, up all night in brackets, going to the loo. <laughs> and reaches back in brackets is playing up a bit. <laughs>
1: I like the first one, don't let him in. Imagine don't let him in. Reacher is OAP and some, somebody comes with one of those scams where they want to fix his roof. <laughs>
0: yeah. They tell him it's
1: going to be like 100 quid and it turns out to be 10 grand.
0: Yeah, you'd yeah, sort that out, wouldn't he he? would, mm. yeah. Um, I'm going to do a little dance around... Uh, the, not physically, Dory. not um, <laughs> <laughs> Is this the break? Uh, around the film adaptation, because I don't really want to focus on that, because I want to focus on your books. But... Um, there was a lot of... You got a lot of stick, I think, over the casting of Tom Cruise, even though, as far as I'm aware, that wasn't your decision. Somebody's playing a little bit of music for us, <laughs> how nice. Um, is that... was Because that, you did get a lot of stick over that. From what I can gather, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, the rights were bought by Tom Cruise's film company for him then to do with whatever he pleased. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's totally correct.
0: So Tom Cruise would be mad to then just not put himself in it, wouldn't he? Because it's such a strong character. You see, I think if I bought the film rights, then it would you be would a Geordie it? woman. Yeah. It would be like Jackie Reacher. War Jackie. War Jackie, War Jackie Reacher. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, the story on that is, yeah, Tom Cruise's company bought the rights, and... For the longest time, he did not intend to play Reacher. Right. Um, He intended just to produce the the movie because it was an attractive proposition to him. And then came on board this guy, Christopher McQuarrie, who wrote the script. And the script was sent to Cruise as producer. You know, you do that. It's it's a formality, really. Whoever is producing the movie gets a copy of everything. So Cruise saw the script, and it was a really, really great script. And Cruise said... Wow, this is a really great script. I'd like to do it. It was the quality of the script that changed Cruz's mind. And it's not, it is sort of true and not true to say I had no control over it because I didn't have any control in the contractual sense. You know, there was no veto in the contract, there was no consultation, there was nothing like that. But it had taken a long time uh, for them to, to get that far. I think by that point there were. 14 or 15 books out and uh, over the years they had built up to you know towards what they are now And so they knew they had to have me on side about it um, And they wanted me on side about it because th- they approached the movie because they they were Reacher fans That's why they did it. They loved they, lo- they liked Reacher. That's why they wanted to make the movie so they they wanted my opinion and um, I, I, I got a call that the uh, one of the other producers, the line producer, a guy called Don Granger, and Christopher McQuarrie were coming to New York, and they wanted to take me to dinner. And so I knew, okay, this is where they're going to tell me it's Tom Cruise. And I, just, I knew that going in. I mean, it was o- obvious. And um, so sure enough, they, you know, we sat down, we had dinner, and they started all this long conversation about how this guy was, uh, you know, booked for the next year and a half, and, I, and this guy was not quite right because... And I just said, look, you know, let's just cut to the chase. You want to cast Tom Cruise, don't you? And uh, they said, yeah. And then I knew that in that next split second, if I had expressed any kind of um, disapproval, they would have dropped it. They absolutely would have dropped it and the movie would not have been made. Um, So I am completely 100% responsible for Cruise playing Reacher because I could have stopped it. (laughs) Uh, But I didn't particularly want to stop it because, and in some ways that was, you know, possibly unwise because I was looking at it completely from the author's point of view. And from the author's point of view, um, you know, you're absolutely clear in your mind that the book is the book and the movie is the movie. They're not sequential. They're not, uh, it's not a a progression where first of all you have the book, then you have the movie, Mm -hmm. and the movie somehow replaces the book. It's, the book is the book, and the movie is a peripheral thing, way off to the side, somebody else's version. It doesn't affect the book at all. And, you know, one of the things I said all the time during this, um, this outrage, is, I said, I'll promise you one thing. Tom Cruise will not come to your house and steal your books. The books will always be there. They will be unchanged. You know, you won't open the book one day and find that the ink is magically altered. You know, Reacher is now five foot seven. It won't say that. Um, the movie is a completely separate thing. And from a writer's point of view, I think that's very easy to to conceptualise because the book is absolutely what it is. And, and um, there have been all kinds of peripheral things. There was a, a thrash metal band from Poland who, uh, when we got to twelve books, we got this uh, approach from a, uh, from a management in Poland saying this band wanted to do an album. Where each of twelve tracks was one of the books told as a five-minute thrash metal song.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and awesome. would I mind?
1: And uh, I said, no, fine, go for it. And they they sent me the lyrics for each one to approve, but they were in Polish, so I couldn't read them.
0: You <laughs> just take them all. Yeah, they're all said, lovely, whatever. Yeah
1: and so you know in my head that thrash metal album in Poland is no different than the movie right. you know it's just a peripheral project does not alter the reality of the books at all so I was ver- very relaxed about it very cavalier and I, I was uh, I was happy that it was Cruz because I thought that you know I feel that Cruise is, is a really good actor mm-hmm. he's not very large I agree but he's a really really good actor and I felt that what we would have is a movie where he inhabits the role and he kind of gets the internals right, and I thought it was going to look very weird for a minute or two, and then the power of the story would suck you in, and you would stop worrying about it, which in general is what people think. Uh, You know, typically, and I've heard, you know, since I came here, I got here on Thursday, and I must have heard already like 500 people say, you know, that movie was really pretty good. Mm -hmm. All the people that thought it was going to be terrible, they fa- finally sort of force themselves to see it and they come out thinking, oh, that was pretty good.
0: Mm. Excellent. Thank you. I've got some uh, questions. I asked, because uh, I, I know that you're on Twitter and I'm on Twitter, and I thought, well, I'll ask some... Uh, to see if any fans on Twitter had some questions for you. So I take <laughs> no responsibility for <laughs> the following I've questions. Uh, and these are a little bit more sort of quick fire, just for mm. our last 15 minutes or so. Who would win in a fight between Reacher and a shark? LAUGHTER
1: uh. Reacher. Depends what kind of shark, but Reacher most likely. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Depends what kind of shark. Uh, okay. Um, Reacher does quite a few women. Has he ever been tested? It's <laughs> <laughs> a good oh, question.
1: You know, I come from that glorious, glorious generation that came of age between the pill and AIDS. And so, uh, no, I, you know, writing from personal experience, Reacher has not been tested.
0: Okay, well now we're a bit more worried about them than we were. <laughs> um, when reading other people's books, what's your? Do you have a literary guilty pleasure?
1: I kind of do. I love sagas. You know, a woman of substance.
0: Oh, Barbara, I love, the, love I love
1: I love you know wronged girls growing up and getting revenge and stuff like that. I love, yeah, <laughs> multi generational sagas. I absolutely love them.
0: Excellent. Will Jack ever have a long term relationship? That was sent from a lot of women. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It kind of depends what you mean by long-term, doesn't it? I mean, some, he's with some of them for two or three days.
0: <laughs> I don't think many women think that's long-term, flowing. No.
1: Yeah, well, you know, then probably not.
0: Then probably yeah. not. He hasn't met the right woman, that's all it is. <laughs> does Jack Reacher ever get fan mail? I'm assuming you do, but does the character ever get fan mail?
1: Oh, God, yeah, absolutely. He gets is more it? than I do, yeah.
0: <laughs> and is yeah. it largely just filth from women? LAUGHTER
1: it is largely filth for moment, yeah. <laughs> in the just a co- guess. In the corner of my office, I have two large shipping cartons, and uh, one of them is for toothbrushes. Um, people, f- people send folding toothbrushes all the time. <laughs> and the other one is for knickers.
0: And that's it? Yeah. And, you get- and what do you do with those?
1: I just throw them in the cartons until the cartons are full, and then the janitor comes and takes them away.
0: What does the janitor do with all of the toothbrushes <laughs> in the cartons? <box? laughs>
1: You know the thing with New York City apartment buildings—you never inquire what the janitor does with the stuff <laughs> he takes away.
0: <laughs> um, is there any chance that Richard will come to the UK for a story?
1: He was here at the back end of uh, *The Hard Way*.
0: Oh right, okay. it was my tenth
1: book, and uh, I, I've been with Transworld Publishers, who are sponsoring this event. Um, who is it? What,
0: what are they called? which the publisher? Trans, Transworld. Thank
1: you. You know, T R. Um, <laughs> And uh, they, you know, they've been fantastically supported from the very beginning, which is not the same thing in the States. In the States, i switched publishers after six books, so I don't really have that, you know, from year zero relationship, but I do here. And so I thought for the 10th anniversary, it'd be really cool if Reacher came to Britain. So he comes to, uh, to Norfolk, basically, and because uh, I, I, I don't know much about Norfolk, and I always f- find it more comfortable writing, making up places I don't know about. Mm. So he we went to Norfolk, and... Uh, it was great for me, because normally when I'm writing, I'm a foreigner pretending to, you know, writing Reacher as a native in America, and I had to turn that on its head. I had to be, I'm a native British person, but I had to write Reacher like a foreigner in Britain. Mm. And it was, uh, it was a lot of fun, and I really, I'm glad I did it, but it had the, uh, the effect that I feared, which was that every other publisher in the world immediately said, well, if you've taken him to Britain, you can bring him to Australia, or Japan, or Germany, or wherever. <laughs> And so I've stopped doing it because I don't want it to turn into a, a travelogue. Um, <laughs> you know, it has to be a really, really good reason for Richard to uh, to leave the U.S. And actually, his passport is now expired, so technically he can't.
0: Fair enough. Now, wait, when you started writing, and you write in American, sort of, don't you? Mm. Was that tricky as a as a, as a Brummy lad? Was that tricky?
1: No, it was really... It was actually... It's delightful, and I think a lot of writers would agree because, you, you know, you're sort of three quarters of the way into an invented world, mm-hmm. and it was actually easier to be 100% into the, into the invented world. You know, every single thing had to be thought about. I think if I was writing about Britain, you would be yo-yoing back and forth between the parts you were familiar with and, and the parts you were making up, mm-hmm. and you'd be sort of bouncing back and forth, but writing in... What is a sort of foreign dialect meant I had to concentrate on everything all the time, and that made it more enjoyable, more coherent, and, uh, and I love words. You know, I think all writers just love words and the fact that different words can mean different things and word order and uh, emphasis, just with a few weird black marks on white paper, mm-hmm. you can suggest rhythm and accent and all that kind of stuff. I, I, I love doing that.
0: As I first came across your books, I used to produce audiobooks, and uh, we produced uh, the unabridged versions mm-hmm. of quite a few of those. Have you ever listened to audiobooks? Is that something, because that's not different enough, like the film is different enough or the album is different enough. Is, it, is that something you'd ever do?
1: I, I, you know, because whenever you do a thing, uh, they always have to send you a copy because right. that's in the contract. So they send the copy, and I sometimes put them on and listen, but I, I find it very hard with audiobooks, simply for one reason. Well, two reasons, really. If you have... If you have a movie contract, uh, which I was fortunate enough to do, you know, right from the beginning, then the movie contract is immensely complicated. Movie contracts are longer than the books themselves. And, uh, I mean, literally full of bizarre stuff, like, you know, by the time you reach page 400 of the contract, you find out what you're actually selling them. And what you're selling them is you're licensing them to do a dramatic production to be shown anywhere in the known universe. And then usually it says, and parts not yet discovered. (laughs) LAUGHTER and the problem is the word's dramatic production because mm. the movie company will claim if you have an audio book with two voices on it, mm. then it's a dramatic production and right. you can't do it. So you've got to have a single reader, which in the case of, of my books obviously is a male reader, which is fine for me until they get to the woman's voice. And it just I just can't bear it. And, um, and also the problem is when I'm reading a book to myself, I, I read it at a variable pace. You know, some of it you slow and savor it, and some of it you've speed up for, and mm.
0: and you don't get that choice. You don't get listening. that choice because mm.
1: the audio book is somebody else's decision about mm. pace.
0: Fair enough. Um, Will would Reacher would ever get through a book without killing someone?
1: You know, read the next book. That's the answer to that one. Read is that the next cardigans
0: book. That cardigans and pain. That one is it.
1: <laughs> I think it's Reacher's back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Actually, the next book is called Never Go Back, but from now on I'm always going to think of it as Reacher's Back.
0: <laughs> Good, I'm glad. Why are some books written in first person and some in third person?
1: Because I, I, would, I prefer first person because it is, it's how we tell stories, you mm-hmm. know. It's how, it's how we always do it. You're going to go home tonight and say, I did this, I did that, and you're not going to... Unless you're seriously weird, you're not going to go home and say, Sarah did this, Sarah did that. (laughs) And so um, it's a natural way of doing it. But it's difficult to plot a thriller in first person because you can only know what the hero knows. And sometimes you want the alternative point of view. You want the bad guys waiting around the corner. So I I, I would prefer first person, but you've got to go to third person most of the time.
0: Mm. OK. Red or brown sauce on your bacon sandwich?
1: Neither a good bacon sandwich should be—it's uh, all grease. You know, the grease is what you want is what lubricates the sandwich.
0: Well, well that wasn't one of the options on the question, yeah, so I'm going to have to push you for an answer. Sorry, um, not, definitely brown? not brown sauce. Red. Okay, yeah. that's an answer. Understood. Um, when is your next book out?
1: August twenty
0: ninth. Awesome. Uh, is your is the character purely from your imagination and yourself, or is it? Are there parts of it other people that you've met? Have you, do you draw in from other people as well?
1: You know, in a very tangential way, absolutely. And this is what you know. People moan about recently that he's got these fantastic skills, and you know, nobody could really be like that, but. We see people like that all the time. Uh, you know, I'm not necessarily saying we all meet sort of military-type people that have these secret skills, but we meet people like that. For instance, I, I always think of baseball, but I imagine that, you know, football or, or tennis even, you know, think about, think about tennis or something like that. These people are superhumanly gifted mm. at something that is extremely difficult to do and that, you know, none of us could even approach, you know. They're in a different universe in terms of that narrow, specific skill. But the rest of their lives, they're the same idiots we are. So, uh, you know, I think it's perfectly plausible that Reacher has these narrow skills, because we do, we see those people all the time. We see them on Match of the Day every single week, hmm. people that are gifted at one, at one very narrow thing and, and are complete morons the rest of the time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Um, I've heard that you're a hi-fi buff. What's the last piece of equipment that you bought and the last album that you listened to?
1: I bet you that question was treated by Ian Rankin. It was. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> and there's a story behind that question, which is that. Has he uh, set me up, has he? No, years and oh, years ago, I was, you know, again, my generation was just so fortunate for music. That 10 years between, say, 1963 and 1973, the music was fantastic. And for some of us, it then But you know, I remember very well the right in the middle of that decade, Led Zeppelin's first album. Uh, I saw them on tour, I bought the album, and you want to hear it like you heard it on stage. So you start getting into it, you want bigger loudspeakers, and you want more powerful amplifier and all, which I couldn't afford. But what I could afford was the magazines, the hi-fi magazines. And so I got into the habit of buying the hi-fi magazines and kind of constantly updating my dream system over many years, and I remember one magazine, I think it was called Practical Hi-Fi, I'll be reading this magazine, and it was edited by, by Ian Rankin. That was the name on the masthead, Ian Rankin was the editor, and Ian Rankin was the uh, technical writer, and, um, and then years later I met the other Ian Rankin, the, the writer, and you know, he loves music too, and I sort of started to put two and two together, and I thought, was that you? You know, writing in practical hi-fi, and and it was, that was one of his early jobs. He was a a technical writer for, and I thought I was so pissed off because Ian actually is younger than I am, and so I had been prepared. I mean, it was hypothetical money, but suppose I had the money, I would have spent that money, based on the recommendation of this like 23-year-old Scottish idiot. And I felt that was most deceptive. Um, But I I can can claim that I'm probably the person... I've been reading Ian Rankin longer than anybody in the world. And I do. I bought a... uh, You know, in New York, it's apartment living. You can't have these big loudspeakers, so I use headphones. And I've got just the most wonderful uh, headphone set up with an amplifier made with valves uh, made by this guy in in Texas. And uh, it's just spectacular.
0: Nice. Now we have to wrap things up a little bit now, um, but I'll ask you two more questions. When you grow up, will you be called Lee Adult? Um, <laughs> that's from somebody on Twitter.
1: Yeah, I'm going to be, very briefly. I'm going to be Lee Adult, and then I'm going to be Lee Pensioner.
0: <laughs> Excellent. And can you give uh, any writers in the room, including me, one tip on how to combat writer's block? as as an end question, please.
1: Yeah, I would say, with writer's block, do not be such a pretentious git. It's the, I mean, it's a job, the same as anything else. And, uh, you know, like, does a truck driver have truck driver's block? (laughs) And, you know, that's a very valid comparison because certainly truck drivers, there are days when he doesn't want to go and drive the truck. Uh, But he's got to because it's his job and his family has to eat. So he gets in the truck and he clips on the seatbelt and he he, uh, waits for the preheater to warm up and he starts the engine and, you know, checks the mirror. And then he's off, and he does his day's work. And it's exactly the same thing for a writer. Plenty of days you don't feel like doing it, but you go down, you sit down, you turn on the computer, you boot it up, you wait, you make your coffee, and that muscle memory then eases you into it. So, you know, it, there is no such thing as writer's block. It's, it's just you being lazy, and you've got to accept it's a job and actually get your ass in the chair and do it.
0: That is the best answer we could have asked for. <laughs> thank you very much. Please, um, can we say thank you again to Transworld Publishers? Who? Who? Trans Transworld Trans. Which we all say it together. Trans- Transworld World Publishers. There you go. Um, and the very brilliant Lee Child. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this event by Harrogate International Festivals. Don't forget to rate and subscribe for this podcast. For more events, recordings, resources and information about our arts charity, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.